Until 200 years ago, absolute poverty is what nine out of 10 people in the world can expect to live like. So when people think my life would have been better in the past, they usually imagine that if they were reincarnated 500 years ago, it would be as a princess. Right, right. right? <laughs> or a prince, you know, playing with ponies and being yeah. waited on. No chances, nine out of 10, is that you would be a peasant covered in dirt and horse manure, uh, working the fields uh, since the moment that you can walk until the moment you cannot walk. And then, Roughly 200 years ago, the first region of the world that starts escaping from absolute poverty, or rather the masses of people who start escaping from poverty is, of course, Western Europe and North America, uh, because of the Industrial Revolution. We have the Industrial Revolution, which basically automates most of the unpleasant work, and a massive gap opens between the West and the rest. And we are lucky enough, obviously, to live in a country which has benefited greatly from the Industrial Revolution, which became the world's greatest economy by the year 1900. Now, that gap continued to expand until about the middle of the 20th century, but the greatest catch-up from the rest to the West has occurred in the last 40 years. Indeed, over the last 40 years, we have seen the greatest decline in absolute poverty ever recorded anywhere. That's according to the Brookings Institution. This is the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. Way more interesting than anything you're listening to on NPR. Probably less exciting than what you're watching on OnlyFans. Bruh. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Ow. Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, Come on, man. and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. I'm Ashton Cohen. I'm joined today by Marion Tuppy. Marion is the editor of humanprogress.org, a senior fellow at the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, and the author of a fascinating book called 10 Global Trends, Every smart person should know, and many other things you'll find interesting. Marion, thanks so much for being with me. My absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, man. Um, so, love your book. Uh, first off, it's very visually appealing, and we'll, we'll put it in the, uh, in the show notes so people can check it out. Um, I think the other really great thing about it, it tells this optimistic story of, of human progress, um, which is not only great because it's not you know, contrast with so much of the doom and gloom we normally hear in the news and all that. Uh, but I think it's also just a wonderful thing because it really shows us how much progress we made and it gives us that sort of positive reinforcement that, you know, we can actually solve problems in the future, right? Because we've, we've come from so many, so much difficulties as a society, uh, particularly Western society and, and the world, and we've solved these problems and we don't have to resort to extremism or you know, radical politics in order to solve a lot of these things. So I think that's a really good message about, about the book as well. Um, you mentioned from the, from the outset of the book, one of your reasons for doing it is sort of the pessimism that encompasses a lot of people's thinking these days. 58% of respondents in a global survey from uh, 17 different countries think that the world's getting worse. 65% of Americans do as well. Another thing that you allude to in the book is how this interesting sort of dichotomy where the smart people were oftentimes some of the most best off people in society uh, are more prone to thinking that things are getting worse largely because they're avid readers of journalism and news stories and those tend to highlight negative externalities. 
Why else do you think people view things more negatively? Is it, you know, you talk about this thing, about it's kind of inherent in our DNA, if you can explain that. You mentioned this thing called judgment creep. What are your reasons that you think people are thinking so negatively given how fortunate we are relative to, you know, everyone's ever existed before us? Well, first let me say that in terms of writing of the book, um, the message is optimistic, but, uh, you know, we, my co-author Ron Bailey and I, we don't necessarily call ourselves optimists. If we say anything, it's a rational optimism um, in a sense that, uh, you know, based on the problems that society was able to resolve in the past, we can approach the future with an attitude of rational optimism that uh, will be able to tackle problems in the future as well. Uh, other people have come up with different terms, such as solutionist. So if, if, um, uh, if, if people don't feel comfortable being described as optimists or think about themselves as pessimists, uh, well, that's fine. You don't have to be an optimist to read this book. Um, maybe you're a solutionist. Maybe you're the kind of guy or girl who um, thinks, well, things could be much better um, let's solve the problems that, that are in front of us rather than run around with our hair on fire screaming, you know, the end is upon us. I mean, that's not a very useful attitude to anything. And then you mentioned that there is a lot of pessimism in the world, and I think that's true. And part of the danger of this pessimism and, and sort of feeling of Armageddon on both left and right of the political spectrum is that, um, is that very often you feel people saying things like, let's just burn the institutions down that we have because they are corrupt, because they're so forth. Now, unquestionably, all the institutions that we have are imperfect. Capitalism is imperfect. Liberal democracy is imperfect. And that's because they are human institutions and humans are imperfect. You don't have to be um, a, a Christian believing in uh, the original sin to believe or to recognize that human beings are just flawed. We are wrong uh, very often and, and so forth. Um, and, and if your approach to human institutions is one of burn everything down, then you are running a huge risk of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, which is to say uh, that, you are, that you are very unlikely to improve upon these institutions that you've come to hate ex nihilo. Out of the ashes of the society that we currently have, um, it is highly improbable that something better will emerge. Whenever you have revolutions, um, the much more likely outcome of a revolution is something worse. Right. The French Revolution, the Soviet Revolution, and so forth. Um, so Another part of the reason why we wrote this book is to say, look, um, the last 200 years are fundamentally different from the preceding 300,000 years. And what we had, um, you know, in the last 200 years is a very high degree of economic and political freedom, which have brought about all of these economic and political and social changes. And so hopefully, as people read it, um, read the book, they will recognize that um, uh, there is a lot to be grateful for, and therefore we shouldn't strive to burn the society down. But I, I realized that that was sort of an opening, a very long opening, and that, that, that there was a question. And, and your question was, of course, what, what are the reasons for negativity? And there are a lot of them. I mean, one of them is that, um, you know, the way that the news is covered. Um, if it bleeds, it leads. 
you know, you, you don't write a story about a family which has had an excellent day um, on a beach in Miami and now is dining in an Italian restaurant and then they are going to go to bed and they have a, they've had a great, great day. That's not a story. But the same family dying uh, in a shark attack or um, a house burning down, uh, that is a story, right? So, um, so, so that's part of it. Another part of the problem is that, um, um, you know, short, bad things ha and, and good things happen along very different timelines. Good things tend to take a very long time to accomplish, be it increase in life expectancy or be it um, um, decline in global poverty. All of these things take decades, sometimes centuries, whereas bad things sort of tend to happen immediately, quickly, like, you know, Putin invading Ukraine, if that happens. And so that's much more interesting. That's something to report on rather than this long-term trend, right? Um, so these are also bad is stronger than good. We feel loss much more than we feel gain. And all of these things are sort of the software in our minds, in other words, tends to uh, overemphasize the bad. And then you have to ask yourself, and that will be the last comment I'll make, why does that happen? Um, well, you know, if you believe in evolution, and I do, um, then you would think that these software programs in our head are an outcome of 300,000 years of evolution of Homo sapiens and then 7 million years of evolution of the species Homo. And if that's the case, then, then you would expect that human beings would evolve to be worried, concerned, pessimistic, because the world of until, until very recently, was a much more inhospitable place to what we have today. Everything could kill you, eat you, you know, a hundred ways to die in the West. Uh, there is a movie about that. And, uh, you know, so, so the world was a much more dangerous place. And I think that, uh, you know, obviously the, the brain has evolved to deal with an environment which is much more, uh, which is much more dangerous than the one we live in today. Mm -hmm. that, that makes sense. The, uh, so let's talk about why I think it's the most important trend that you mentioned, which is poverty. You mentioned how uh, as late as 1820, 84% of the world's population were living in extreme poverty, extreme poverty, which you define as, uh, or rather, which is defined, subjectively defined as $1.90 per day, inflation adjusted. Uh, then it declined to 66% in 1910, 42% by 1981. So in between, what, 1820, 1982, we went from 84 to 42% extreme poverty, so a reduction in half, which is pretty amazing. Then, as of 2018, it's down to 8%. So that's even more progress in, what, last roughly 40 years than we've achieved in 160 years. So it's accelerating the amount of people being lifted out of poverty, out of extreme poverty. What's the biggest cause of that? Is it China opening up economically? Did India play a role in that? Yes, so a couple of preliminary comments. Um, whether you measure absolute poverty as $1.90 or $2.10 or $2 or whatever, um, that's really not important. Um, absolute poverty is sort of around the $2 mark, which uh, signifies basically the, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a money value on the, average amount of production that you would have to do as a human being in order to survive to see the next day. That's the absolute barest minimum. 
if your productivity is much lower than $2 per person per day, then you are probably starving along with your family to death and that sort of thing. And um, uh, the key to understand is that prior to about 200 years ago, roughly 90% of humanity lived like that since days immemorial. You could take this statistic all the way back to 10,000 or 300,000 years ago, and it would look exactly like that. So um, until 200 years ago, absolute poverty is what 9 out of 10 people in the world can expect to live like. So when you think about the Rawlsian veil of... Um, uh, ignorance, uh, you know, what, what would you like to be, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the key here is that when people think my life would have been better in the past, they usually imagine that if they were reincarnated 500 years ago, it would be as a princess, right, right, right? <laughs> or a prince, you know, wow. playing with ponies and being yeah. waited on, no chance is nine out of 10 is that you would be a peasant covered in dirt and horse manure. Uh, work in the fields uh, since the moment that you can walk until the moment you cannot walk. Um, and then, roughly 200 years ago, the first region of the world that starts escaping from absolute poverty, or rather the masses of people who start escaping from poverty, is of course Western Europe and North America, uh, because of the Industrial Revolution. We have the Industrial Revolution, which basically automates uh, most of the unpleasant work, and people move to the cities, they start making more money, they become wealthier, they start you know, specializing in uh, professional um, uh, type of employment and so forth. And a massive gap opens between the West and the rest. And we are lucky enough, obviously, to live in a country which has benefited greatly from the Industrial Revolution, which became the world's greatest economy by the year 1900. Um, now, that gap continued to expand um, until about the middle of the 20th century. Uh, but the greatest catch-up from the rest to the West has occurred in the last 40 years due to the much maligned idea of globalization. Now, I realize that there are a lot of people out there um, who are about to press the stop button because they hate globalization. And, you know, globalization has its minuses. It comes with certain costs such as what we have found in the United States. You know, a lot of people uh, were dislocated, lost their jobs and whatever, uh, because those jobs went to, um, um, went to Asia, to places like China and, uh, uh, and India. Nonetheless, globalization has brought about massive, massive improvements globally. So if your viewpoint goes beyond the United States and encompasses humanity as a, as a whole, well, there's no question that in the last 40 years, uh, Chinese uh, uh, living standards have risen dramatically as the country reformed and entered the global marketplace, which is just a synonym for globalization. India, after 1991, did something similar. But other countries too, Vietnam, Bangladesh, Thailand, um, uh, many of these countries which have hundreds of millions of people uh, have seen a tremendous increase in standards of living. So that's the reason. And indeed, over the last 40 years, we have seen the greatest decline in absolute poverty ever recorded anywhere. That's according to the Brookings Institution. Make the case why that's good. Now, obviously, it's globalization, so we have, you know, like any major world phenomenon, it's going to have its pluses, it's going to have its minuses. What, what have been the good aspects for, say, the American consumer from globalization and from people in India and China? coming out of poverty. Well, that's great. How has it uh, also benefited the average American? Is it things that they've been able to purchase 
that's much cheaper that led other uh, other companies to then you know run more efficiently certainly, um, certainly. I mean uh, you know when 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 you are able to produce a, a a book like this one in China or India for pennies rather than dollars then what happens is that as an American consumer, you're also going to get access to cheaper goods. But the benefit goes beyond that. Now, imagine that you can produce this book for 10 cents in India, but $1 in the United States. And imagine that you, Ashton, buy it. What happens is that you have a book, but you also have extra 90 cents that you didn't spend on the book, that you can spend on something else maybe buying a suit or an American flag uh, or whatever. The point is that by saving all the money that we otherwise would have spent on consumer goods, because they are made in China, India, Vietnam, Bangladesh, and so forth, we also saved a lot of money through which we were able to create new industries and create unemployment, uh, sorry, create employment, as well as unemployment, but employment here in the United States, which is why, in spite of globalization um, taking away a lot of jobs from America, our unemployment is not 20% or 30% or 50%, but it is 4%. Right. Um, and we've done a lot of good to, to the rest of the world. I mean, there is a there is certain level, I think, of moral happiness that can come from knowing that tens of millions of babies don't die due to starvation around the world. Maybe uh, if, if we didn't have globalization, Americans would, because they're generous people, they would have paid for it in, in, in uh, foreign aid rather than, rather than letting those people um, increase uh, their standard of living on their own. I actually think that, obviously, them being able to work and, 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 and work for themselves and get, get rich is, is a good in, in and of itself, and it is much more preferable to foreign aid. Um, so, so yes, um, it saves money. And, and the final point on that, I would say, is nothing prevents us as Americans, I'm an American now, uh, nothing prevents us from becoming more competitive with China and India by regaining that competitive edge through lower taxation and lower regulation. You know, our politicians on both left and right keep on bitching about China. And indeed, you know, there is a lot of things which are going in China which are absolutely horrific. And, you know, we are going to revisit a relationship with that country soon enough. But you want to compete with China? Why don't you cut your corporate tax rate? Why don't you deregulate? Why don't you make the tax system more simple so that it's not six times the length of the King James Bible? Um, there are a lot of efficiencies that we could introduce here in the United States in order to be competitive, even with people who have lower labor costs. We are not doing that. We are doing the opposite. Right. We are making our energy more expensive. Right. We are making our production more expensive. So. And also with, with respect to, you know, we should also be training our people for some of the more lucrative industries as well. You know, that's, that's another failing on our part. If a lot of the lower end industries are going to China and because they're cheaper, then you know, it's incumbent upon us to focus our talents on some of these industries of the future as well, right? Yeah, and they're, they're, they're generally better jobs. Now, look, I'm, I'm not going to downplay the hurt and the sense of loss that people have in Appalachia right. because, for example, their uh, mines have closed down. 
all of that is discombobulating and dislocating. However, if we can move away from dirty, difficult, life-destroying jobs, health-destroying jobs, to jobs which uh, bring with it more money and are perhaps easier, then that's even better. But again, here, we have a role to play. We have a secondary school system which is completely dysfunctional, which is not teaching our children any useful skills. Um, uh, you know, there are, there are areas in this country where kids are leaving high school without being able to do basic reading and math. Right. Um, and then they enter universities where the government subsidizes for them to take courses in, in modern dance. What's that about? Um, we should be subsidizing. If, if we need to subsidize anything, it should be, you know, uh, jobs that are actually useful to the economy rather than sort of self-indulgent, narcissistic um, courses that don't make anybody better off make the people who get those diplomas completely unemployable. They end up making coffee, and then they, then they decide that they are, then they become resentful of the society they live in. Because there, are, there are plenty of idiotic uh, subjects um, uh, that, that, that we don't need to subsidize. No, I agree, and, and that's, that's kind of what I was getting at as well, is, uh, you know, while I think there's a lot of useful criticisms of, of globalization, we also need to look at ourselves and, and uh, See what we're doing wrong in terms of, you know, I think the point you raised about our education system being an absolute disaster in so many different areas is poignant. And uh, with our, with our college system as well, you know, having all these, paying for all these people to have these useless majors. And, you know, part of it isn't even necessarily their fault as much because when you're 18 years old, you're kind of dumb. You don't know a lot. And so you take these classes, you get all the stats, you come out, you have no skills. In some cases, you have even... I would say even worse ideas than you had when you growing in. So in some ways, it made you develop even worse habits. I've seen that as well in college. So that's well, that's, that's that, is, that is true. And of course, the universities are making hell of a lot of money, billions of dollars from from stupidity of eighteen year old kids who, or rather ignorance, not stupidity, right. but ignorance right. of eighteen year old kids who don't know any better. But then they jump from a major to a major, end up with some sort of a general degree, which is completely useless to themselves and to the to the society. Absolutely. Go into your, uh, let's go back to one of these trends, which I think is also pretty important. So about famine, uh, talk about the, the global intake of calories per day has risen dramatically, uh, especially, let me, so is it, especially in poor places like sub-Saharan, uh, like in sub-Saharan Africa, the average food supply per person per day rose from 1,800 calories in 61, 1961, about 2,500, 2017. Now, is this large part due to more access to things like meat and dairy? Because I thought meat was bad and, you know, dairy doesn't seem to be like a growing trend here in L.A. Everyone's drinking oat milk. So, uh, is, is, uh, you know, when can I get a, a, a vegan oat milk latte in Mogadishu or, you know, is exactly. <laughs> are they really making progress for meat and dairy? Is that why people are getting more uh, protein, more caloric intake? So you are in LA, I, I empathize, yeah. I, I mean, I, I sometimes feel like everybody on the West Coast has some sort of a life-threatening allergy and uh, mm -hmm. can, cannot eat this or that. And um, uh, Look, uh, poor people, I used to be poor, um, uh, they don't have choices uh, like that. They, they, they cannot afford allergies. Um, and um, diet of poor people is exceptionally, exceptionally boring. It is exceptionally... Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, There's no other the basically. It, it, it's, it's the same every day. Basically, um, 
since the agricultural revolution 12,000 years ago, humans have been primarily dependent on carbohydrates. And uh, in poor countries today, like seriously poor countries, people eat carbohydrates every day. But not just, it, it's not a choice of cereal. Um, if you're growing up in, as a poor person in South Africa, it's maize, uh, maize meal, um, which we would call cornmeal. And this is what they eat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day of their lives, okay? Um, or if you are from, you know, from, uh, from um, uh, like Europe used to be, it used to be potatoes, obviously. And in other countries, uh, it, may be, it may be something else. Um, the point is that uh, carbohydrates uh, are less nutritious than meat, and more importantly, they are, you, you need much more carbohydrates in order to produce the kind of energy you need to work than, than comes from, from meat. So um, what you find is that as countries become richer, uh, consumption of milk and consumption of meat increase for two different reasons. One is variety. You want more variety in your diet and consumption of meat is uh, not just adds to the variety but it's also a status symbol. I can have meat. Um, it's more expensive, but I've, I'm a successful individual and therefore I can have a chicken leg twice a week, right? So it's the variety and status symbol, but, but also importantly, it is a, is a source of more uh, calories and uh, uh, more nutrition um, than, than carbohydrates are. So, so that is why we have seen such a massive increase in consumption of meat and milk, um, meat especially in places like uh, China, uh, that's the one I'm most familiar with. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, poor people uh, desire things that we desire. Right. They want meat because it's better. And they should they should be uh, made to feel bad about that, right? We should be happy that they're getting access to yeah. meat. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that in the West right now, this very restrictive diet. Um, um, it's fine for some individuals. I mean, I have no problem with vegetarianism, fructarianism, veganism, or whatever, but that's not the sort of diet that is going to get you through a hard day in the mines or in a factory. Um, there is a reason why those people consume many more calories, why they tend to favor meat and that sort of thing, because, because they also need much more energy. Um, and... Um, Let's also not forget that this highly restrictive diet, which is, which which a lot of people, rich people in the West, have opted for. Um, you know, it's um, it's it's very expensive, and it's but but it has a great degree of variety. You know, you can get your avocados from Mexico, you can get your grapes from Chile, you can get your blueberries from Peru. Um, so you know, the meal that you construct along your vegetarian or fructarian lines is actually going to be much more interesting than the type of vegetarianism which is practiced by people in sub-Saharan Africa, which would be, again, maize for breakfast, lunch, and dinner as long as you live. Right, right. So speaking about this, so you talk about trend number three, you question if we're this uh, notion that we're running out of resources. In the 60s, he's still around, I believe, right? Uh, Stanford biologist Paul Ehrlich yeah. wrote a book in 1968 called The Population Bomb theory basically that we run out of resources and a, a population will be too big for the earth to sustain. 
And um, I remember even hearing about this when I was a kid. And he actually doubled down on it. I don't know if you mentioned that part, but he doubled down on it, I think, in the 90s and 2000s with other books and other other talks. So he, he didn't like to admit he was wrong. Um, now we actually see people like Elon Musk talk about how depopulation is going to be a problem. We see this in Japan. We see this in different places in Europe, Italy in particular as well. And a lot of these welfare states are sort of premised on having a lot of working people per retirees. So what's, uh, what's the deal with this essentially population myth? Is, it, is overpopulation going to be a problem? Is underpopulation a problem? Is neither? Well, there are two questions there in your question. One is natural resources and the other one is population. Which one would you like to go with first? Right, so Paul Ehrlich, who is uh, very much still alive, a uh, biologist from Stanford, published a 1968 book, The Population Bomb. Um, and uh, basically that predicted that within a decade or two, uh, hundreds of millions of people throughout the world would die because we would run out of food. And indeed, when I was growing up in the early 1980s, uh, I do remember distinctly um, news coverage from the Horn of Africa, from Ethiopia, Eritrea, and those places, Somalia, where you know, the, you, you had babies with swollen tummies and, and their eyes covered with uh, flies and that sort of thing. And, and indeed, it looked like uh, maybe, maybe there was going to be uh, a, a mass loss of life due to, due to lack of food. But in fact, the opposite happened. Um, we, have, we are producing ever more food. Today, we are producing roughly three, uh, as a world, we are producing roughly 3,000 calories per person per day, which is more than enough to feed the entire humanity. Now, of course, it's not distributed uh, appropriately. There are places where the, where the calorie consumption is much higher, and there are some places where it's still insufficient. But, but famines, which have been around since, since, since forever, have basically disappeared outside of war zones. So we no longer have famines as a result of lacking food production. We now have a famine if, if when it happens due to primarily political um, disorder and war. Um, and, so, and, so, uh, and so one of the, so as a result of innovation, and, 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 and what was at the root of this, of this tremendous increase in, in, uh, in, uh, in food production was um, was the, the green revolution, where we have started using genetically modified, um, uh, specially bred uh, types of wheat, for example, um, that is able to feed more people um, uh, and, and so forth. But that wasn't the only type of innovation. Uh, innovation is happening all around us. It is happening in mining. It is happening in resource use. We use much less resources per GDP, per dollar of GDP than we used to. And as a result of that, prices of natural resources have actually been falling in the long run. So in the book, we look at natural resources going back to 1980. And in the second book, which will come out in August, which is called Superabundance, we look at natural resources going back all the way to 1850. And what we find is that natural resources have been becoming progressively cheaper relative to labor. Um, so that tells us that actually we are not running out of anything. Uh, and the only thing which is getting more expensive is human labor, which is to say human productivity, because human beings are becoming better at producing more and more value during their lifetimes. Um, so, um, so to the extent that price reflects scarcity, we are able to conclude that we are not running out of anything, basically. Everything is becoming cheaper. Um, Population-wise, uh, of course, 
the total fertility rate, the so-called TFR, uh, has been collapsing around the world except for southern Africa, sub-Saharan Africa. So for a population to remain the same, you need 2.1 babies per woman per lifetime. Um, right now, there are many countries around the world where it's well below two. Uh, places like South Korea, for example. In South Korea, South Korean women have about one baby per woman per lifetime. Uh, in Eastern Europe, it's like 1.3. In the United States, it's 1.7. Uh, the difference is made up by immigration. But native-born American women have, have a fertility rate below, uh, below, um, uh, below replacement level. And so we are currently expecting that population will peak at around 9 or 10 billion midway through this century, and then it will start falling. So currently we have 8 billion people in the world. And uh, the, the best analysis which I have seen sorry, not the best, but the latest analysis which I have seen in, in the British, news, uh, British magazine Lancet um, suggests that in 2100 there will, either be, um, um, there will either be 8 billion people or 6 billion people. Um, so, you know, the, the, the point is, sorry, there is going to be, no, in 2100 there is going to be as many people as, as today. I mean, there is a little bit of an of a uncertainty as you right. get closer to 2100. So it could be either... Um, uh, it could be the 9 billion or it could be 6 billion. Either we are going to have one more billion people or one less billion people by 2100. But the point is that human population is not expanding um, uh, exponentially. Uh, uh, we are still growing as a population, um, uh, but, but there's going to be a peak at, our, at around 2060 and then it will start declining. Now, I, I'm with Musk. I think that having fewer people on Earth is probably going to be worse than having more people on Earth. Oh, sorry, than having fewer people on Earth. Um, sorry, having fewer people on Earth is going to be worse than having more people on Earth. And that's for a simple reason, that human beings uh, are the only entities capable of producing ideas. And ideas are then uh, tested in the marketplace and lead to innovations, which then get translated into higher standards of living. So, in a sense, if you want a higher standard of living for Americans, but also for the people in Bangladesh and so forth, we need to have better technology. And better technology depends on innovations that can only be introduced by the human mind. Right. And so if you want to maintain economic growth and perhaps even accelerate it, you need more people to start thinking, uh, having ideas, exchange those ideas, build on those ideas. And if you're going to have very few people or many fewer people, then we could, we could easily see economic growth rate slowing and I think that's part of what uh, Musk is saying. Well until Skynet takes over, right? Uh, you mean uh, you mean artificial intelligence? Yeah. yeah. Uh, well so it is possible that artificial intelligence could one day produce ideas on its own. Like new ideas. But we don't really know if this artificial intelligence revolution is going anywhere. Uh, given how difficult it is to launch a autonomous vehicle, for example. Um, given that we've been standing in the same place for the last five or ten years when it comes to just something as simple as a self-driving car, um, you know, it may take a very long time before we get to a proper AI which is able to come up with its own ideas. One thing I want to ask you too about, speaking of, of the Ehrlich guy, so in Michael Schellenberger's book, he draws a connection between Paul Ehrlich, who was 
had this you know, doom and gloom prophecies about overpopulation and the sort of climate change alarmism that we've come to see. And people like him, essentially, once the overpopulation theory didn't pan out, they then started to sort of drone on incessantly about how we're destroying the earth and, uh, you know, creating all this sorts of uh, calamitous consequences and the earth, the earth is going to end in 10 years. And for some reason, that clock keeps on repeating itself. Uh, do you see any parallel between that gloom and doom stuff over the overpopulation? Uh, yeah, I do in a sense that, in a sense that both the overpopulation crowd The environmental concerns have changed a little bit. In the 1960s and 70s, it was human beings are going to be too numerous, they are going to consume resources, and the world will end. That has evolved into something slightly different, which is we have too many people consuming too much stuff, and the byproduct of that will be the destruction, environmental destruction of the planet. It's not that we are going to run out of things. It's that we are going to run out of the sinks, the sink, um, the, the, the human ability, uh, sorry, the planetary ability to, to cope with all that development. There will be too, many, too much pollution, too much trash, and so on and so forth. But what ties these two environmental theories together is that fundamentally they see human beings on average as a cost rather than as a benefit. They see human beings as a problem, as a as something that makes things worse. And what I am saying, and what I think Musk is saying, is that human beings are the solution. Because if we are going to have a solution to problems, and let's face it, so far we've had solutions to our problems, that they, they have to emerge from human mind. And we have resolved many more difficult problems than we are facing in the future. We have resolved smallpox and Ebola uh, we have a vaccine for Ebola. We have a vaccine for uh, COVID. We have increased life expectancy. We have doubled life expectancy. We have resolved global uh, global food shortages. Um, and at any rate, what does it even mean that, for example, we will not be able to cope with rising oceans? I mean, the Dutch are able to cope with living under the sea level and have done so for the last 300 years. Really, like 30 feet under the sea, right, in Netherlands? In, probably in some areas. But the point is that the, the, the Dutch have managed to dry Netherlands and to have a hyper-successful culture, economy, and society at the time when they were as poor as Bangladesh and had much more primitive technology. Why can we not cope with the effects of climate change 100 years from now when we are going to be six times richer right. than we are today? It makes absolutely no sense, this, this warmongering. By the way, I'm not a climate denier. I, I want to make that absolutely clear. I do believe the world is warming. It's just that it, it's just that it's just another problem that we have to solve. And by the way, we know how to solve it because we know how to produce energy for every human being without producing CO2, and it's called nuclear. We've had that energy for the last 80 years. We can have sufficient energy, reliable energy, plentiful energy, cheap energy from nuclear reactors, which are now much safer than they used to be. So, and, and, and if we can build enough of those, climate change, 
climate change, well, the, the problem disappears because we are no longer spewing CO2 into the atmosphere. So we, we already know the solution. We just don't have the will to do anything about it. And so the alarmists are also against nuclear, which is also important to point out, right? Oh, that's, the, that's, the, that's the ultimate, that's the ultimate, what's the word I'm looking for? That's the ultimate um, disappointment, and that's the ultimate puzzle, mm -hmm. is that when you present environmentalists with solutions to the problems which they themselves have identified right. as problems, they refuse those solutions. So it's like they cannot take yes for an answer. Typical example is... Um, um, flow of pesticides from fields into rivers and then into oceans. We need pesticides in order to feed humanity, but it has a side effect of polluting our rivers. Is there a solution? Yes, there is. What's the solution? It's genetically modified crops which do not need pesticides because the plants themselves protect themselves against um, against, um, uh, whatever, insects. When you present this solution to a serious, uh, to, to a real problem, to an environmentalist, they say, absolutely not. Okay. Um, we are running out of water, they say. We are not really, because we can always desalinate water. But let's say that we do. Well, we now have precision agriculture from Israel. We have plants that can be genetically modified in order to utilize less water but because it's genetically modified, that's also a no-go area for the environmentalists. Mm -hmm. So you cannot win with them. It's yeah. a religion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think it's a problem. I, we see it now with uh, Germany running into issues because they shut down all their nuclear plants, and now with this whole absolute insanity. Absolute, mm -hmm. absolute insanity. In Britain, people are starting to burn wood because because electricity is so expensive right. that they are now they are now reintroducing stoves and burning wood, wooden logs um, in order to heat their homes. And of course, Germans are utterly hypocritical about it. They get their energy from Poland, which is burning brown coal. Not even the good coal, but the brown coal, which is incredibly bad for the environment. Mm -hmm. So they can, the Germans can say, oh, we live in this country that is producing very little CO2. Yes, and where is your electricity coming from? I mean, it's mm -hmm. not coming from unicorn tears. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, it's coming from Poland which is burning coal. Yeah. So it's absolutely insane. I mean, there is just so much hypocrisy and insanity on this side of the political spectrum. It's, it's, it's beyond belief. Do you have any, Ruka, do you have any insight as to why? So, I mean, looking at it from an outsider, I always thought the Germans were more rational than, say, the French in a lot of ways, and that they seem to be more pragmatic, and, and you know, particularly in, in terms of their economic production had proved to be so. Um, the French were very smart on this. They, they, they went pretty heavy on nuclear. They didn't shut them down, right? And the Germans sort of gave into that, uh, that sort of fear-mongering and shut down the nuclear. Do you, do you have any reason why, do you have any insights on why they went the different ways? Uh, we are going to get cancelled for this, but um, <laughs> um, but you already introduced one German stereotype. They said they are hyper-rational. But um, maybe, but another German stereotype, they like isms. When, 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 when an ism comes, they embrace it wholeheartedly, and they don't like dissent. Now, there are plenty of Germans who think the green policy is mad, but, but the, the zeitgeist in Germany, all the good and the famous and the beautiful people have bought into environmentalism as the latest ism around which Germany has to unite. Yeah. 
Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a peculiar thing. French maybe aren't as conformist, right? Because they're, they're always like rebelling and, right? We, we even see that with, with some of the COVID, right? They, they have a long history of rebellion and fighting against being told what to do. It, it, it's, yeah. it's possible, but, you know, um, this is obviously highly politically incorrect territory, but, you know, stereotypes are there for a reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, let, let's not get too um, better than thou, um, uh, here because also in this country um, you know we have a lot of we have a lot of these sort of um, also in this country there are sections of society that have embraced extreme environmentalism as as, as a way of life um, you know so so you know nobody's immune from it but but I, I I am comfortable saying that in certain societies dissent is more difficult to get traction than others. Yeah, 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 for sure. I, I, think, that, I think that's fair to say, and I, I don't think that could be impeachable. That's impeachable by any of your critics yeah. or our critics. I agree. I agree. And it's just, it's just interesting to look at um, cultures that are largely on the same page on a lot of different issues, particularly with like a, you know modern phenomenon, modern problems, and to see the sort of deviation on something pretty significant like that. That's it's always interesting to see why why that could be. That's why freedom of speech is so, uh, that's why freedom of speech is so incredibly important. You know, I grew up in a country which didn't have freedom of speech, and um, you know, um, I don't like that because when you have a bad idea, which is coming from the top down, and you cannot criticize your government, then the whole society can can literally drop off a cliff because it's it's pursuing a bad mad idea. Um, Britain is risking running out of energy. Britain, the fifth largest economy in the world, the place where industrial revolution started, right. now has people, a substantial chunk of the population, unable to heat their homes because energy is so expensive um, as a result of government policies. This is a self-inflicted wound. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's really shocking. The And we should just finish off on, on this environmental topic with a few of the stats you brought up, which I think are really important for people to know because they're never really discussed uh, in the mainstream press. So, yeah, deaths are down 99% in the last 100 years from mm -hmm. global natural disasters, which is pretty amazing, going back to what you're talking about, how we can actually solve all these problems. That seems to be what a result of wealthier societies being able to um, create infrastructure that's resilient to some of the worst floods and hurricanes and damage. Absolutely. So extreme weather includes things like uh, uh, drought, floods, tornadoes, tsunamis, things like that. And in all of these cases, um, we, are, we are better prepared. I mean, we have satellites which tell us roughly, well, first they tell us that a hurricane is coming, which of course people 200 years ago wouldn't know. And then it tells us, satellites tell us where approximately it's going to head to so that people have days, sometimes weeks of warning that they have to leave an area which is going to be in the eye of the storm. So that's one typical example. Another one is that our buildings are much sturdier than they used to be, um, and it's much more difficult to destroy them. Another reason, for example, is we now have um, sensors uh, on the bottom of the oceans or in the oceans, buoys, which can detect uh, underwater volcanoes and underwater earthquakes, uh, therefore, thereby, um, thereby alerting coastal communities that there is likely to be a tsunami 
and therefore they must evacuate into a higher ground. Um, so these are just some of the ways in which modern society, as a result of economic development and wealth, um, is 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 much safer place to live in than 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 would have been the case in the past. Would you say that the best way of basically ensuring that we have a healthier planet, that we we pursue things as a planet, uh, as as governments around the world, to to have a you know more environmentally clean and, and pleasant planet, would be to pursue, or rather, would be to try to get poor countries to be rich as soon as possible so that... Unquestionably. Unquestionably. Mm -hmm. Unquestionably. Um, you don't have to be a math genius to figure this out. You take a graph. On one end, you have environmental quality. On the other, uh, on the other uh, axis, you have GDP per capita. And the relationship is, is it's incredibly strong. The richer the country, the better the environment. You can look at the Yale uh, Index of Environmental Protection you can look at any kind, kind of uh, environmental statistic, uh, be it, uh, uh, well, practically any kind of environmental statistic, um, and, uh, and, and overlaid on top of uh, income per capita. And what you see is that the richer the country, the, the better the environment. And that, of course, is a result of the fact that good environment is not something that poor people care about. Um, uh, if, if it's a question of feeding a family or killing a, uh, a particularly rare bird right. uh, or an antelope or a rhino that you can then sell to China for thousands of dollars, um, you, you know, you're going to do that. Um, I, I wouldn't go as far as to say that good environment is a luxury good because, you know, we all want good environment. Um, but it is certainly something that only rich people can afford yeah. to care about. Yeah. When you're hungry, you don't care as much about CO2 emissions, right? Yeah. No, and we see this all over the place. We see this all over the place. I mean, when the Venezuelan economy collapsed, uh, people started slaughtering animals in the zoo in Caracas. Uh, when the Zimbabwean economy collapsed in 2008, both of them Marxist, by the way, just in case there is any doubt what caused that, um, um, you know, people started slaughtering wild, wild animals. Um, I mean, if you cannot get your meat from a shop, you know, you're going to get it from the, from, from the park. Yeah. From the, from, yeah. Also, with, with the Soviet Union, I remember reading that they were the only people, they were responsible for a large amount of the whale deaths after it had been outlawed by the West. Going into, like, the 90s, they were still killing so many whales. Uh, when other when you are a poor society, you try to make money any way you can. Right. You don't care about the environment. Uh, Russians were terrible stewards of the environment. Uh, they destroyed the um, Baikal Sea, was it? I can't remember which, which, which sea it was. Uh, the level of environmental damage after the collapse of communism has been absolutely staggering. Uh, the, the divergence between uh, environmental protection in East and West Germany, in North and South Korea, um, is, is just breathtaking. Yeah, yeah, it goes against a lot of what we think. Uh, run a couple more stats for the for the audience. So apparently, we're you say that we're conserving more land and sea than ever before, and that the amount of trees, uh, the amount of trees and forests are gaining significantly. Can you sort of go through why that's the case? Sure. Between 1982 and 2016, the tree coverage in Europe and the United States increased by 35 percent, in China by by 25 percent. Uh, right now, we have afforestation or net gain in forest um, growth, 
we, we focus on the net gain because every year in every country some trees will be destroyed and some trees are going to be planted. So what you want to do is to, to know what the net result is. What, what is the net difference? Are you planting more trees than you are destroying? And we are planting more trees in North America, obviously, um, Europe, Asia, Oceania. We have a slight, ever so slight decrease on annual basis in Africa, but it's almost zero. And we have a serious problem in Latin America where the, the tree coverage is shrinking um, um, rather than expanding. But the bottom line is that throughout the world, uh, uh, that on average, globally, uh, the, the, the tree coverage has grown by the size of two Alaskas, something like that, wow. in the last, between two, 1982 and 2016, hmm. which is a lot. That is a lot. Something I, I, I never heard that. That's uh, something you don't hear. No, but that's the thing, is that, you know, it's, people just, <laughs> if you buy into the whole business that everything is getting worse, you know. Uh, another thing is, which is very interesting, and that, that this particular statistic comes from NASA, of all places. NASA, they tell us that foliage is increasing. In other words, the, the amount of green stuff on Earth, the, 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 in, in trees, in bushes, in shrubs, and so on, is, is, is increasing because there is obviously more CO2 into the, in the atmosphere, which is plant food. Um, plants are now becoming uh, much more, well, the foliage is getting more extensive and greener and more luscious, precisely because there is more food in the atmosphere. Now, I'm not an advocate. What I'm not saying is that we should have more CO2 in the atmosphere. Um, I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is that there are costs and benefits. There are trade-offs between all sorts of things, you know, and, and we should be aware of not only of the things that are bad, but also of the things that are good. And last thing, let's talk about life expectancy and uh, stats on crime. So you have in your book about how you know, obviously genocides are, have gone down significantly. Um, we had a, World War II was you know, probably the apex uh, in terms of modern times. And then you had the 1970s with Bangladesh. And then it's, that's been falling down precipitously. Uh, you have murders per 100,000 people around the world going down quite a bit. In the United States, violent crime peaked at about 758 people per 100,000 residents in 95, and that's come down ever since. Uh, and for murders, they went from nine people, nine homicides per 100,000 people in the United States in the 1970s, and now it's down to about what, five per 100,000. What do you think the caused the rise in murders to go up in the 70s and then up until, I believe, the 90s, and then start to come down from the 90s in the U.S.? You left one of the most difficult questions to the last. So um, it is important to recognize that uh, murder rate in the last two years, since the book came out, has actually increased in the United States. There is no point denying it. Um, it is still lower. People need to understand that it is possible for something to get worse between year 10 and year 11, and yet at the same time be better than in year one. And that's exactly what happened, is that, is that our murder rate is creeping back up, but it's nowhere as bad as it was in the 70s and uh, uh, also in the 90s and so forth. I don't have those stats in front of me, but um, uh, it is better. Now, the question is, why is that happening? This is a very, con uh, this is a very contentious um, topic, 
Um, some people believe that it, it, it that that crime in the United States uh, uh, lessened uh, after the early to mid 1990s as a result of uh, greater uh, enforcement uh, of law and order. In other words, that the United States put behind itself the sort of touchy-feely uh, attitude to criminals and started locking people up uh, with, with, with much greater um, frequency, and that's what drove the crime down. And uh, <clears throat> the question, uh, but, 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 but that is not a universally accepted explanation, right? And so we are facing a similar problem now where our criminality is going up, and I assume that part of the reason for it is that we are no longer prosecuting these crimes, right. many of these crimes. We are letting people go. You can now shoplift up to $1,000. Um, it's almost impossible to convict a person uh, for a variety of different crimes and so forth. Um, and we've become convinced that our jails are far too full, and therefore, um, you know, we should let these people go. Now, so time will show. I don't, I'm not sure, but the, 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 the prevalent theory that I read about, but it is contentious, is that the reason why criminality came down in the 1990s is because a lot of people got locked up. And now we could be experiencing uh, a return back to much higher criminal levels as, uh, criminality levels as we no longer go, go after criminals with the same vigor. Yeah, yeah I, I think it's pretty clear, at least for the last, the last few years, as to why there's been an a, um, increase you have people like Chesha Boudin and the DA over here. I mean, it's just, it's pretty obvious. You can just, it, it does correlate pretty damn well with letting these people out in the last few years and the amount of violent crime we're getting. And you see, you see it in, in the, the calamitous consequences in all these cities across America where they have these sorts of policies. The, the more interesting question and, and complicated ones is the one I, I gave to you, which is like uh, from, from sort of the uh, 90s on, on up, so you were talking about a span of twenty-five years, uh, thirty years. Uh, why that happened? That's yeah, that, that's quite interesting. I have to ask you one more. The uh, because it's about air travel, something I'm quite uh, passionate about. So we have a. Uh, you mentioned in your book how how it's gone cheaper. So in the fifties, Boston to LA round trip would have cost you something like two thousand dollars today. If you're you know depraved enough to take Spirit Airlines, you can do that for about a couple hundred bucks. Um, obviously the Flying experience was, was much different back then, right? There's the golden age of flying. Uh, one of the things I found interesting, though, and I didn't see you mention in the book, but I, I saw in um, a prior article I read about how the routes, if you look at some of the most popular routes domestically, like L.A. to, I don't know, New York or Miami or something of that nature, uh, I think that if you look at 10 most popular routes, they pretty much the flight time has basically stayed the same or in some cases gotten worse in the 70s because I guess maybe it's more efficient in terms of fuel and all that. Why do you think that um, air travel, we haven't seen such, you know, we've seen gains in uh, efficiencies in terms of the pricing, but we haven't seen much gains in terms of the technology like we've seen so many other areas. We're basically in the 70s in terms of the actual technology of the airplanes and all that. Why do you think that is? I'm not a specialist on this subject at all. And, uh, you know, although I, like you, I'm fascinated by planes and so forth. But, uh, I mean, self-evidently, um, the European idea of um, hypersonic travel, or is it supersonic travel? Which which one is it? Supersonic travel? Supersonic. Yeah, supersonic. Yeah, hypersonic is the missiles, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, that the, the planes were simply ahead of their time. The, 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 there wasn't enough sufficient materials and technology to make it work uh, on, a, on 
on an economic scale. And so that's why Concord went out of business. And when people blame Americans for being too much wedded to profit and not having the vision of the future and so on, I always remind them of Concorde, but also of the double-decker Airbus, which was also launched as a visionary project in Europe um, and, and also has been a disaster. So what American airlines have been doing for a long time is obviously making right calls about what is the trade-off between different aspects of the costs and benefits that go into air travel. What's more important to a typical American? To get to a place, uh, to, to get from, from, from Washington, D.C. to Miami in two and a half hours for 200 bucks or in one and a half hours for 500 bucks? And clearly, the decision was made that, uh, that, that people are, care much more about price than they care about comfort and about speed. However, I wouldn't say, I, I would say that I'm extremely optimistic, rationally optimistic, that by the time I die, I'll be able to travel to Australia in four hours from Washington, yeah. D.C., or something like that. Because, like you, I follow this a little bit, and the extraordinary new ideas floating about, about new airplanes, airplane designs, which of course are now much more efficient because you no longer have to make every part and see how it will work with another part. You can now every design everything in a computer. Yeah. Um, well, 3D saves, parts too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, 3D yeah. Pr printed. You know, you, you no longer have to create a machine to, to create a big widget. So you, you can just 3D print it in five minutes. And um, um, so we have new designs, we have new materials. Um, we have new fuels, new propulsion um, uh, systems being worked on. Um, I just think that Concorde was ahead of its time because they were trying to make a plane with, with technology of the 1960s where everything was pre-computerized and now with the computer and supercomputers, I think that we'll be able to come up with a solution to this problem as well. We will be able to come up with um, travel which will be much quicker and not as expensive as, as it would have been on the Concorde. Oh, okay. so, yeah. I don't, I don't know how old you are. I'm in my 40s, and I fully expect that by the time I'm, I'm retired, there will be an easy way to get to Australia. Yeah, I'm, I'm 30. So I remember when the Concorde was uh, phased out, and, and you know, nothing's, nothing's really happened since. We have better entertainment options, I guess, in the plane. But, you know, uh, but there does seem to be a renewed interest, particularly both in aerospace, uh, you know, in, in space and in uh, aviation. Uh, maybe we just need to wait until Musk decides to get involved, and then we can get some progress. Uh, book is called... 10 Global Trends. Mary Antuppy, thank you so much for being with me. Uh, where can people find you? They, we'll put a link to the book. Anywhere else they can find you? Um, I am uh, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute in Washington, D.C. Uh, I can be reached at contact at humanprogress.org um, or on Cato website. Thank you, again. It's a real pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks, man. If you enjoyed our show, please click subscribe to stay up to date with our YouTube channel and podcast, and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts so that we can keep delivering guys some great content. Thanks for listening, and we will be back next week.
We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Ow. Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, Come on, man. and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started.